you grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19? Revelation chapter 19, we'll start in verse 1 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1039. Uh, in, in Revelation so far, you know, we have heard words like tribulation and endurance and trial. Uh, we've heard appeals like hold fast uh, or be faithful unto death. Uh, we also have met some sinister characters, haven't we? Satan, the dragon, the beast who wars against the church, the false prophet, and of course Babylon who is drunk with the blood of the saints. And then we've also heard cries from God's people, how long, O Lord? And what all these things tell us is that Revelation was not written for a comfortable church. Right? It's written to a church in tribulation. Uh, it is for those wearied by the world's persistent evil. It's written for those who are weary as they bear up under the pressures of evil in the world. And many of you know this, this weariness. I mean, every news outlet gives 24-hour commentary on the world's evil. Uh, you've also experienced hurt or, betray or betrayal, perhaps, for, for following Jesus. Uh, you could name churches that have fallen prey to Satan's lies, and, and you feel a deep sense of grief in, in your spirit. Um, you know the pressure of temptation in your own uh, heart and, and, and the hardships that you've, you've had to endure. And, and when we take all these things together, it's enough to exhaust any Christian. In tribulation, we need something to hold on to. Or better, we need, we need a hope that will uphold us in, in the face of evil. And that's why Revelation exists, uh, to hold you up, to, to keep you faithful uh, to give you hope. And chapter 19 belongs, is a significant, it belongs to that hope. It's a significant piece to, to what's going to hold you up. God will judge evil and he will one day fill the earth with songs at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what today's passage anticipates. So read it with me, starting in chapter 19, verse 1. This is God's word. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants." Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The words we just read, uh, we know that they belong to a much bigger picture, right? Which started at chapter 17. In chapter 17, we, we learned of, of this city that was named Babylon. And, and she was compared uh, to a great prostitute. Uh, she personifies the, the whole system of evil that is opposed to the Lord and oppresses his people. But we also learn that, that Babylon won't last forever, right? She has an expiration date. God has determined her judgment. Chapter 18 then pictured the aftermath of, of her judgment. You have these kings and, and merchants and shipmasters, everybody who was, who was setting their hope in Babylon. They weep because the great city is no more. Their riches have all perished. They have no future. There's nothing, there's nothing left for them but this desolate wilderness, no singing, there's no life, and there's no wedding. But that's not the case for those who have set their hope in the Lamb. Right? Jesus Christ, if he is your hope, we, we see this glorious scene that we just read about in chapter 19. Twice, John hears a, a great multitude, and they're singing in verses 1, and then he sees them again singing in verse 6. We have seen them before in chapter 7, verse 9. It is a multitude that no one can number uh, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They have washed their, their robes and made them white in the blood of of the Lamb. And now we have the privilege of listening in on their praises once again, but this time we're listening to a, a future song. You see, Babylon's judgment is so certain that the song has already begun, in a sense. And the first thing we learn from that song is to praise God for the coming judgment of evil. We learn to praise God for the coming judgment of evil. In verse 1, they sing, Hallelujah. Now, that's not a, a word you will find elsewhere in your New Testament. But, and, and the only other place you'll find it is in the Psalms, uh, where uh, the worship leader would call the people to praise God for his mighty deeds in salvation and judgment. Usually, it's, in your Bibles, it's translated simply, praise the Lord. And what I find interesting, though, uh, is that as you read the Psalms, this word gradually increases. You don't find it till Psalm 104, and then it gradually increases uh, near the end of the Psalms and where, where there is a striking emphasis on the conquest of the future king in David's line. And so Revelation 19 is describing that future conquest in verses 11 to 16. All of the Psalms are finding their fulfillment in the conquest of Jesus and with that conquest comes the judgment of Babylon. And so they sing hallelujah 
salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, salvation refers to God's redeeming work in Jesus, right? In Revelation, he's the lamb who who gave himself uh, to redeem a countless multitude. He also conquers the dragon in chapter 12, and here he's saving his people from Babylon. Glory is another word they use, uh, and it refers to the intrinsic worth of God that then goes on display publicly as as, uh, he saves and judges. Power is something else they recognize, and here God's power is the one that's toppling Babylon the Great. Babylon had received power from the beast, but here God is toppling Babylon with his power, showing he is the one with who, who is almighty, right? So people had made, God, had made Babylon their savior. People had thought Babylon was glorious. People trusted that Babylon was invincible, but God's judgment reveal, God's judgments reveal that salvation and glory and power actually belong to God alone. And so the multitude praises God. Verse 2 then develops Why? A little more fully, Uh, starting with a more general point uh, that we saw before in chapter 15. uh, It says that his judgments are true and just. That's one reason they praise God. His judgments are true and just. There's nothing in God's nature that's tainted with error. Uh, He is goodness, and so no one can question his judgments. When he judges, no one can look at him and say, you screwed up. No, everything he does is good. More specifically, though, his, uh, his truth and justice, they become apparent in toppling Babylon. Uh, you see that in verse 2 where uh, it says that she corrupted the earth with her immorality. Uh, ver- uh, remember in Revelation, immorality is not limited to sinful sex. It is a symbol for spiritual harlotry of all sorts, unfaithfulness of all sorts. Uh, and, and within the Scripture, especially in chapter 4, where we see the, the, Lord, crea- uh, the Lord as creator, um, you get this picture that's painted in Revelation where God makes the earth good, and, and, he, and he made us to worship him alone, Uh, And when humanity worships God, uh, relationships experience good order. The creation itself thrives. But Babylon has has led the nations to cheat on the Lord, so to speak, to to compromise with false gods of, of all sorts. And through it, she has ruined the earth. She has ruined relationships. She has ruined the created order itself. And so it's appropriate here for God to judge those who are ruining what he made to be good. Another reason they sing is that his judgment has avenged on her the blood of his servants. It's avenged on her the blood of his servants. In chapter 17, verse 6, uh, we read that Babylon, she was drunk with the blood of the saints. Okay, she, she has supported the unjust killing of God's people. Uh, Back in chapter 6, verse 10, we even heard the cries of some of those who were murdered for their faith, right? They they cried out, how long, O sovereign Lord, just, holy and true, right, before you avenge 
the blood, avenge our blood, right? In Babylon's downfall, God is answering those prayers of the saints. Finally, we see here, God has vindicated them from all of their oppressors, and so they sing. Hallelujah. They also sing because verse 3 says, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, that's from Isaiah chapter 34, verses 9 to 10. Uh, Edom was God's enemy, uh, but the Lord promised to punish them the same way he punished Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, And when the Lord was finished, the idea is that people would be passing by uh, that city and they would see the smoke rising. Uh, and, And as they saw the smoke rising, it would serve as a memorial to Uh, their judgment, right? Well, the multitude is witnessing the same here. Uh, They are seeing a memorial to Babylon's judgment. Babylon will never rise again. That's the idea of forever and ever. Her smoke goes up forever, and so they praise God. Now, some struggle with this picture of, of the saints eventually praising God over others being destroyed. Uh, But I think we also need to remember a few things here. One is is what we discussed at chapter 14, verse 11. Uh, Those who who face God's judgment are not the innocent begging for mercy. It's not as if the, 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 the fires of judgment will all of a sudden change their mind and now they, they, want, they want out, right? They want to be with God. No, they will remain in their sins. They will remain haters of God and haters of God's people. Something else to consider is, uh, is that God's judgment reveals aspects of God's love. So you might ask, like, how are they singing here? Well, much like a wife would feel loved by a husband who protects her from an abuser, so God's people are experiencing his special love in delivering them from Babylon, their abusers, right? And so they are singing because of the Lord's protection here. And something else is that praise over the smoke rising forever, it it need not dismiss how we'd all experience Babylon's fate were it not for the Lamb's blood, right? And so there is a sense in which even Babylon's judgment tempers the saints' praise with humility. But finally, I think we also need to recognize that the multitude is not singing here about punishment for its own sake. Rather, they rejoice in what the punishment reveals about God's true and just character. They now see the glory and the worth of God in an unveiled way. And they have learned to esteem him rightly. The rest of heaven confirms their praises. In chapter 4, John Stark started Uh, If you you remember back to the throne room scene, God starts at the throne and then he works out to the four creatures and the 24 elders and then the the great multitudes eventually in chapter 5. Well, here we see him start with the multitudes and he draws us in closer and closer to the throne itself. Uh, 
the 24 elders and the four living creatures, we see them say, amen, hallelujah, to what the multitudes are, are saying. And then, and then we go into the throne itself, and a voice comes from the throne, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So four, what we're seeing here is that because of God's judgment on Babylon, we, we ought to see that he's worthy of praise, and we should praise God for his judgments. And that brings us to a second scene with the great multitude. Again, John hears this, this hallelujah chorus in, in verse 6, but this time we learn to praise God for the marriage of the Lamb. Praise God for the marriage of the Lamb, right? And we're going to go through all those texts on the screen. Just kidding. We'd be here a while. If you want to take a picture of them, uh, we'll get to some of them in a minute. But these are basically passages of Scripture that show the, how God relates to his people as a husband relates to his bride. Okay? So if you want to study that further, we'll get to some of them in a minute. Uh, what we're seeing here is that the judgment of Babylon wasn't an end in itself. Uh, it, it, it prepares the way for a greater work that's part of a new creation uh, when Christ returns. And they say here, the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. We've seen that word before, Almighty. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. You read it as God of hosts, uh, Lord of hosts. Right? He, it's this idea that he exceeds all others in, in power. His reign is unstoppable. Uh, and that's true all the time, right? Because he's God. He rules his creation. Um, but in Revelation, what we're seeing, in term, temporally speaking, is that God's reign refers to the way he manifests his kingdom on the earth at Christ's return. Okay, and that's what verses 7 to 8 develop. It, they are events surrounding Jesus' return, uh, and that also fits Jesus' teaching elsewhere about the return of the bridegroom. The multitude says here, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, a few things to consider here. Uh, one, we're now introduced to another woman. Okay, Babylon was also a woman, but she was an unfaithful woman. This woman keeps herself for one husband, the Lamb. She wears garments that are bright and pure, which the text says symbolizes the righteous deeds of the saints. Uh, we saw earlier in chapter 3, verse 4, uh, that stained clothing is a symbol for moral defilement. Okay, and here, the bride is bright and pure. Okay, that's not her own accomplishment. Uh, we're also told how it was granted to her to clothe herself, right? God's initiative stands behind her righteous deeds. We're also told in chapter 7, verse 14, how the multitude washes their robes and makes them white in, the, in, in Jesus' blood. But the emphasis here 
is that instead of choosing to sleep around with the world, the bride has chosen to walk in purity. Like a pure virgin, she saves herself for marriage to the Lamb, and eventually we'll see her coming down from heaven as the new Jerusalem in chapter 22, verse 10. So this woman here is also, uh, in the same way that the, the prostitute personified Babylon, that city, this woman will eventually uh, personify New Jerusalem. Okay? <clears throat> now, this, uh, this special marriage union between Christ and His bride fulfills a major theme spanning the whole of the Bible. That's why I've got passages up there uh, for you. Um, in the Old Testament, to be God's people was to be in a covenant relationship with Him that was much like a, a marriage. Uh, that's why uh, the law uses language like whoring after other gods, because at Sinai, it was like God married His people, right, and gave them the law they were supposed to, to follow. Um, Yahweh is the covenant husband, and His people shouldn't cheat on Him with, with idols. Of course, that's exactly what they did, right, as the story goes. Um, Ezekiel 16, uh, for instance. You get this picture where God finds Israel. She's in a desperate state. She's, she's dirty, and she's, she's bloody, and uh, she's without hope. And, and, but God, he, he cleans her up, and He prepares her to be His bride um, but then as the story goes in Ezekiel 16, uh, Israel then chases after the idols of, of other nations. And so God uh, compares Israel to this serial adulteress. who just keeps running around uh, with other lovers. Isaiah tw uh, chapter 2, verse 21 laments the same thing. He, he says, how the faithful city has become a whore. Uh, the prophet Hosea even illustrates this, right? By uh, the prophet himself has to marry a woman named Gomer that he knows ahead of time is going to cheat on him. But the Lord tells him to do it. But as you keep reading Hosea chapter 1 and 2, you realize how Gomer is actually picturing Israel chasing after whatever lover she wants. And so in all of these... Uh, prophecies, God reveals that He must judge Israel for cheating on Him. But that's not all that these prophecies reveal. They also speak of a covenant husband who, in some extravagant mercy, willingly forgives his unfaithful wife and restores her to himself. Uh, let's go back to Ezekiel 16 for a minute. Ezekiel 16, after, after this heart-rending story, story of the Lord presenting, himself, presenting the bride to Himself and then she runs off with other lovers, it ends with this promise. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. 
The shame of your adultery I just got done describing. You will never open your mouth again about your shame. Why? When I atone for you for all that you have done. (laughs) Or uh, how about Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. Right? They, They slept around so much that that Hosea has to talk about Yahweh like building walls over here to keep them from going after all of the the idols. And, and, And it gets to the point where it says that Israel just forgot God. They had forgotten God. And it would have been just and right for God to forget them. But that's not what happens. God says... Behold, I will allure her. Despite all she's done to him, you see this image of God as a husband speaking tender and romantic words to woo her back. And the words include things like this. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I talked a minute ago from Isaiah 1, 21, where he said the faithful city has become a whore. That's how the prophet starts. By the time you get to chapter 62, verse 4, the Lord is telling his people this, you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. You shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the the Lord is, delights in you, and your land shall be married. Goodness, what mercy to look at the woman who's run around on him and say, one day I'm going to make it such that my delight will be in you. And so as the storyline progresses, the the prophets anticipate God coming like a husband to rescue his bride, even when she's been unfaithful to him. And then enters Jesus, God Almighty in the flesh. And what do we find Jesus doing? (laughs) He's at a wedding in Cana, turning water into wine. Why? (laughs) Because he's preparing the ultimate feast as the ultimate bridegroom. He's getting ready to win her. In John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist is presented as the last prophet of the Old Testament, and he's like the best man at the wedding, introducing the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, he says, that's Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, 
who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist is there saying, the wedding bells are ringing. Can, can you hear them? The bridegroom is here to win his bride. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't flirt with other gods. He doesn't flirt with other idols. No, he obeys God all the way, even to the point of laying down his life for his unfaithful bride. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present himself to the present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. There's your atonement that Ezekiel 16 was talking about. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that she might be bright and pure. In Revelation chapter 19, it's like we're in the foyer just before the doors open to see her husband. And she's dressed here. The bride is dressed and ready for the marriage. Jesus' return completes the marriage. And so the multitude here sings, Hallelujah, let's give him Glory. Do you feel that? Do you want the doors to open? Throw them open. We want to see Jesus now. We want to hear him say, my delight is in you. Verses 9 to 10 then round out the section here, and in them we also learn to praise God for the true words of his Spirit. Praise God for the true words of his spirit. The angel says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. John is mixing the metaphors here in verse 7. The bride represents God's people. In verse 9, the invited guests are his people. There there is a parable that Jesus tells in in Matthew uh, 22 where some are invited but refuse to attend, right? That's, that's not how invited is being used here. Here it refers to all who will enjoy the Messiah's banquet. If you belong to Jesus, there's assurance here that you will feast with him at the final marriage supper, something the Lord's Supper will point us to again in a little bit. John experiences all this. He falls down at the angel's feet to worship him in verse 10. And the angel says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, some translations take spirit of prophecy to mean the testimony about Jesus uh, it captures the essence of what true prophecy is, right? That's why it's a lowercase spirit in some of your uh, translations. 
But Revelation is a prophecy where we're told several times that John receives this prophecy in the Spirit, or when he's carried away in the Spirit. Um, So I think it's better to take Spirit as referring to the Holy Spirit here, the the Holy Spirit being the source of prophecy. So the testimony that John has received about Jesus is the Spirit Himself prophesying. Meaning, if the Spirit is the source of this testimony, don't bow down and worship the angel, John. He's just a messenger like you. Worship God. God is the source of these words, is is the idea here. All right, that's the vision. Now, what's the point? uh, What are some takeaways here? how, How should this move us as Christians? How did it move? How should it have moved the, the churches that John was writing to in chapter 2 and 3? One, I think, I think this passage should move us to pray for Babylon to fall and for Jesus to return. Earlier this week, I was in uh, 2 Samuel... Uh, chapter 7, where, where God makes the, that grand covenant with David. Uh, and David, following that covenant, he prays for God to confirm his word. He prays for God to glorify his name. He prays for God to bless uh, David's house. But I find verse 27, 2 Samuel 7, verse 27, very instructive for our own prayers David says, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. You get it? David's prayer, he can take courage to pray the way he prayed, because it was based on and rooted in what God had revealed to him. We have seen another revelation that God has given to his servant and through his servant has given to you. God has promised to judge evil and bring the marriage of the Lamb. And these promises come as answer to the prayers of the martyrs in chapter 6. Therefore, saints... You should find courage to pray for Babylon to fall and for Jesus to return. When you see evil prevail and the innocent suffer, find in these words the courage to pray. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. Find courage to pray. Father, end the wickedness of the world. Upend Babylon. Cause her to fall. Smash the teeth of the wicked. Frustrate their plans. Shatter the idols. Avenge the blood of your servants. Bring a new creation and don't let Babylon corrupt this world any longer. Confirm your word about her judgment. Fill your prayer prayer life with the things of revelation. Find courage to pray, Lord Jesus, come. Don't delay. Rescue your bride. 
Wherever she's hurting, sustain her and keep her and protect her. Wherever she's tempted, speak words that will draw her back and woo her back to yourself. Dress your people in righteousness, Lord, and and prepare them to meet you. These are the prayers that you can be confident God will answer because they are rooted and grounded in the words he has revealed to us. So let this vision move you to pray. We should also be moved to join the multitude in praising the Lord. We don't have to wait till the day comes. We can praise the Lord now. We can praise the Lord for his coming judgment. Part of God's plan in renewing all things is ridding the world of all that destroys it. Evil has an expiration date, as someone else has put it. Things won't always be this way. Part of the good news is that God will eradicate all evil. So we can give thanks to the Lord for this and we can praise his name. Praise him also for the marriage of the lamb. Praise him for the lamb's sacrifice. Right? We sung sung of some of this earlier. Jesus' blood washes us and makes us new. He enables us to sit at the wedding banquet without shame. Right? Isaiah 54 says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. I've got things I've done this week or said to my son this week that I'm ashamed of. And the gospel message is saying Jesus' blood covers that shame, right? Fear not, for you will not be ashamed in Jesus' presence. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. So praise God for that. Praise God that our true husband has come to deliver us and he's coming again to bring us to himself. And praise God for his true words from the Spirit. Do you ever just spend time thanking God that you have a Bible in your hands? That, 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 that these words he has spoken and that we get to read them? Right? What a treasure we have in God's inspired written revelation. Our God is not silent. He has spoken and revealed His purpose. So give thanks that we're not facing the world's evil without a word of hope. Without nothing, without anything to stand on. We have a word to guide us in the midst of tribulation. We have a word to uphold us and to remind us that the outcome is secure. Jesus wins. So praise God for all these things and let them put a new song in your mouth. And then lastly, prepare to meet your husband. Prepare to meet your husband. That's that's both sanctifying and it's reassuring. Right? It's sanctifying because Christ's bride wears righteous deeds. And in Revelation, obedience and good works play a crucial role in the Christian life. Those who belong to the Lamb follow Him wherever He goes. They act in loyal devotion to their husband. But you live in a culture that's determined to lead you astray from your true husband. You're engaged to Christ and you're, and you're waiting for that, that wedding day, but Babylon the prostitute seeks to lead you down a different path. She has riches and pleasures and comforts and security that will give some immediate gratification. 
Don't think it can't happen to you. In Jeremiah chapter 2, Israel is likened to a wife who leaves the Lord for false gods of other nations. She forsakes the fountain of living water and hews out for herself broken cisterns. In Hosea 4, the men of Israel went after sexual idols of various kinds. In our day, you can add pornography to that mix. In Ezekiel 23, Israel looked to the power of political systems to save them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul describes the church as a people that he betrothed to one husband. He aimed to present them as a pure virgin to Christ, but at some point they start straying after a different Jesus that the super apostles are preaching that would lead them away, he says, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. James chapter 4 he addresses quarreling in the church. And he gets to, hey, why are, you, why are you fighting with each other? I'll tell you why you're fighting with each other. It's because your passions are at war within you. And then he says, you adulterous people. Again, recalling that, that marriage relationship we have, relationship we, relationship we have with Christ. So don't think it can't happen to you. It's happened to God's people before. Babylon can so easily distract us from our one true husband, so don't let her. She's a liar, and her smoke will go up forever and ever. Guard yourself from morally defiling things of the world and clothe yourself with a pure devotion to Christ. Keep yourself like a pure virgin waiting for the big wedding day. It's almost here, beloved. And that's why it's also reassuring because this passage tells us that our bridegroom is coming back. As a kid, I grew up in a church that had a bell tower and we loved, like it was, the, like it was madhouse after, after the service on a, big, on a big wedding day where the kids are all trying to race up to the attic to pull the bell to let people know of the celebration that's what Revelation does. It's already pulling the rope and the bells are ringing. Right? We can hear the, bedding, the wedding bells ringing in this, this passage. Our husband will not leave behind the wife he died for. He died to present you to himself in splendor and he is the almighty God who is unstoppable in making that happen. The marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. We will eat with Him. He will delight in us. All will be well and glorious once again. So let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that it would be a source of encouragement to us as we are in the midst of tribulation and that we would find ourselves encouraged to prepare ourselves for our husband. Thank you that Jesus is coming back. Please hasten the day. Please bring it soon. End the evil of the world. Make it right. Make things right again. Cause your glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.